0: Laura Gokia shares about connected learning on today's Teaching in Higher Ed. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at Facilitating Learning. We also share ways to increase our productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm thrilled to be talking with today's guest. She is a wealth of information about connected learning and has one of the most unique Twitter accounts I have ever heard of. It's Google guacamole. And of course, I had this wonderful opportunity to speak with her. I'm recording this after our conversation has ended and completely forgot to ask the origins of her Twitter. But she's just a tweet away, so I can always ask her and follow up that way. Laura is a wonderful educator in the world of connected learning. She's a self-described designer, collaborator, and communicator, and that comes through in everything that she does. And one interesting note is that she earned her doctorate in educational research and evaluation from Virginia Commonwealth University, and her dissertation is on connected learning and well worth having a look at. Laura, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: I did talk a little bit before we got on the line about what you currently do for a living, but I know that is not what you've always done. And you have perhaps the most unusual career path that I have ever discovered. So I'd love to hear you share a little bit with people who are listening. What did you used to do before your current work?
1: Well, I started my professional life as a physician. I graduated from medical school in 2002 and I did a residency in obstetrics and gynecology and then went to practice gynecologic surgeon in rural uh, surgery in rural Virginia, where I worked for five years. So I was the only gynecologist or only full-time gynecologist for a 40 mile radius in a very small town in Virginia. And like I said, I did that for about five years and it was very isolating. And I didn't do a great job of setting up a personal learning network or a social support network. You know, it wasn't there. I would have had to work at it. And I I guess I just didn't know how to do it. And so I suffered from some burnout and decided to quit practicing medicine and uh, went to the nonprofit sector where I did a lot of volunteering and a lot of talking with people to try to figure out what there was in the world outside of medicine. And I kind of backed into a PhD program from there, first in adult education. And then after I finished my coursework in adult education, I decided to go on and do more coursework in educational research and evaluation. So I just completed my PhD recently. And during that time period, because we're talking about a four-year time period where I was working on my PhD, I helped establish an online open act access journal called the Journal for Prison Education and Reentry, so that was exciting. Uh, That was actually my first exposure to the world of online publishing, and that's where I first developed my personal learning network, was through that process of figuring out how to start an open access journal. Then I worked as a graduate fellow at the Academic Learning Transformation Lab at Virginia Commonwealth University, and that's where I met Gardner Campbell and John Becker and learned about connected learning. And from there, that's, that's how I got to do what I do, which is uh, design connected learning courses.
0: Do you ever now look back with the lens that you have now and think, I'd love to take this back into medicine in some way? Or is it that path is, we're done with that and we're on a whole new path?
1: No, in fact, I would say that the reason why connected learning spoke to me was the fact that one of the primary themes of connected learning is this idea of creating a personal learning network. And so when I first heard about connected learning, it was it was like, wow, this, this is what I've been looking for. I've been looking for ways to establish connections with people across space and time. I've been looking for ways to talk about my past experience. In ways that transcend disciplines or professions, this idea of learning through making connections and valuing connections and, like I said, developing a personal learning network, this is the type of thing that would have helped me in my medical practice, and it's what I was looking for. So that's why out of all the things that I studied during my PhD studies, because like I said, I went through a lot of coursework. I did a lot of projects all over campus doing all kinds of interesting different things, but it wasn't quite what I was looking for. But Connected Learning really spoke to me because it's what I needed during my medical practice.
0: We're going to talk about Connected Course Design today. And we decided, actually, we, you decided, we slash you <laughs> decided we're going to look at four buckets. We've got the Theory Bucket, Design, Tools, and Outcomes. So let's start with theory. What is the theory behind connected course design?
1: Right. So I back up even further and talk about the theory of connected learning because I think it makes the course design make a lot more sense. And a lot of my understanding of theory actually comes from Julian Sefton Green. But um, Julian likes to talk a lot about the idea of the learner identity where when you value making connections in your learning life across your personal hobbies, your home life, your social life, and um, things that are going on in the classroom, and you can start to see patterns and make connections across all of those different life experiences, you create a holistic learning life. And when you value that, it can help you make decisions in moving forward. So what we're trying to do is give students the ability to make these connections um, across people, disciplines, different contexts like home, church, social life, to where they see that they're learning in all of these different places and connect it together. So that's kind of the underlying theory. We're learning, we're engaging students, we're creating deeper learning through making connections. So that's the underlying theory. And then you start getting into pedagogical design. So how do we create learning spaces where that sort of learning happens? That's connected course design. That's what you're trying to achieve. And so I like to break that down into three different types of things that happen in in these spaces. So there's open learning spaces. Openly networked learning spaces is really what I call it. There's networked participatory activities, and then there's multimodal composition. And so to back up a little bit on that, when I say openly networked spaces, what I'm suggesting is that a lot of the learning and even a lot of the learning products are openly visible are public, are visible for other people to see. And, you know, open and public, that's that's a spectrum. You know, some would argue that you can do this in classrooms where, pe- where the students are learning, you know, where it's not technically public to the larger open public, you're doing it in a, a closed community. Typically, I tend to work on truly public spaces, like openly public platforms, where you're actually doing it in public, where People from the outside world can interact with students. But you know, we don't we don't have to get into that, <laughs> into that conversation today. But it's that idea that students have their own workspace, like a blog, for example, or you know, some sort of portfolio. They have their own workspace where they're doing their own work, but it's easily accessible and juxtaposed with the work of other students, so that students can be inspired by each other, comment on each other's work, and collaborate in order to construct this overall course experience. So that's the openly networked space. Networked participatory activities are those in which students are working together to collaborate and to create something in a constructive sort of way. And, and One of the tricks in talking about design is that it gets easy to fall into tools. So I'll give some (laughs) examples of what I'm talking about in just a second. Yeah. The third is multimodal composition. And that's where I'm talking about learning about things through more than just text, especially in higher education. We tend to focus on writing a lot. But there are other ways to think through problems. So bringing in art, visual art, performance art, music, thinking about things in metaphor, making things beyond the use of text. So those are the three design components. But like we were talking about, Bonnie, it gets pretty easy to move straight
0: into tools. Yeah. Before you go on to tools, when we first got on the phone... I was admitting to you that our move to Canvas for this fall had really challenged me, especially when I looked through the lens of a link that I'm going to post on the show notes for today, which will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 116. And it is page eight of your embedded PDF there. And it's a way of looking at a course and assessing it to the extent to which it embraces connected learning. And I'm just going through every one for the course that I just redesigned for the fall. And I went, oh, no, 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 not doing it there, not doing it there. So before you get on to sort of talking about tools, if anyone else is like me, and by the way, it's this particular course that I clearly still need to revamp. I'm excited that I have been experimenting some with connected learning in other courses. But when you look at it through that lens, it really can help you critically assess one's class. So... If someone is listening and it feels too overwhelming, you go, okay, wait, this is all brand new to me. What would you say would just be the one thing we should know about theory that should challenge us to our core? Or the one thing about design? Like what what should be the kind of, if this is brand new to you, here's what should start to bubble up in you?
1: To me, the most important part of it is helping students begin to understand the connections between all the different aspects of their life. Mm-hmm. So it's that that point of relevance. So you're helping students figure out and valuing how whatever it is they're learning in your course also plays a role in whatever their personal hobbies are, whatever their professional aspirations are, you're triggering students to work to make those connections. Mm. So to me, that's the underlying point of all of this, is that you're helping the students personalize the learning for themselves. And you're valuing it when s- you're, you're asking students to bring in their personal experience and their previous experience and you value that.
0: And that can be so hard for us to do because for many of us that happened a long time ago. The the relevance for us is so ingrained in our discipline that it's very hard to put new learner's lenses on, which is why back to your comments about the importance of a personal learning network. If I'm not doing that, then I'm not regularly being challenged to learn new things. So I don't have that discovery process as a new learner to help guide me when I'm bringing new people into a discipline. So it can be really challenging.
1: Yeah, and maybe that's why it's so it's so obvious to me because I'm I'm very much a just a student. Like I literally just finished my PhD earlier this year. And so I really look at the, I look through the lens of what it's like to be a student mm-hmm. in these classrooms. Yeah, for sure. So
0: how about the tools?
1: The tools? Yeah. So there's so many different tools, you know, to sit here and, and list them, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But, you know, when you hear people talking about blogging, blogging is a tool that can help promote those, these sorts of activities. Uh, it's a place where students can do reflection pieces. It's easy for students to review each other's blogs. It's a space of one's own where the student can create their own workspace. It kind of goes back to what I'm talking about as far as it allows the student to have and hold their own workspace that moves with them from class to class to class and then outside of class, you know, students can access their blogs mm-hmm. on vacations and and when they're working and and they can add on to it between semesters and things like that so it's their own actual digital workspace that moves with them but at the same time when you connect those student blog posts onto a course blog or a lot of people call them mother blogs then it allows the students to see what each other are doing and they can comment on them and it it really creates like a huge overall picture of what's going on in the course and you can find themes across that. So blogs are one example of a tool that help promote this sort of learning uh, across different contexts, across disciplines, and where students can learn from each other. Microblogging, same kind of thing, you know, we're talking microblogging is um, like tweeting for example. So tweeting is a great place to start a personal learning network. Curation activities. So using Pinterest, if you want students to learn how to curate from the web and put together a collection of things that other people have created, I mean, that's a great way to talk to students about how they look at their sources, how they judge their sources, um, or through curation activities. I think in previous podcasts, y'all talked about um, hypothesis mm-hmm. as a way of annotating. So that's a, a way of ha- having students collaboratively annotate. So all of these things that I've been talking about are network participatory activities that can be promoted through these digital tools like Hypothesis, like Pinterest, like WordPress and, and Twitter. So the idea here is that you don't just add Twitter to your class or add Hypothesis to your class. The idea is, look, I need to help students learn how to critically evaluate a piece. So let's do it together. Let's do a collaborative annotation project. I need hypothesis for that. Or I need students to learn how to have a conversation with each other in very clear, concise points. Okay, I'm going to use Twitter for that. So it's not tool first. It's okay, what am I trying to get students to do? So which tool matches up with what I'm trying to achieve?
0: Tell me about a time when you were completely blown away by the power of any of these tools from yourself as a learner?
1: Oh, Twitter. No doubt. Twitter is my favorite personal tool. And it all goes back to any time that I need to learn something. And in my life, I have started fresh on learning so many times, like right now, right this very minute, I'm trying to learn SQL. The database language. (laughs) And, you know, that's, I have no background in computer science, or, or I have no background in that whatsoever. But the first place I go to is Twitter, where I have a personal learning network that is dense enough and rich enough and deep enough that I can find people on there who can help me, give me resources, give me encouragement. I've actually been talking in SQL on Twitter, and people will respond to me in SQL which is not only really fun and is great for moral support, but it's also practice too. So for me, Twitter has been the best way to find people who can support me and I can support them, even though we don't live in the same place.
0: And our last bucket to talk about is outcomes. Outcomes.
1: And, you know, one of the reasons why that's my last bucket is because I feel like that's where we need to do the most work, because we know that assessments, so, so learning assessments for students, need to align with our, our design and our activities and our philosophy. So if our philosophy, and this is one of the reasons why I start with theory and philosophy, if my philosophy is that students are supposed to be making connections across the different aspects of their lives, then that's one of the things that I need to be assessing, Right not necessarily just content acquisition. So we need to go back and think about, okay, what are these courses really trying to do? We're teaching students to become more comfortable with curation and judging their sources. Okay, well, we need to assess that. We want students to be more creative in how they transfer knowledge across the different disciplines. Then we need to talk about how to to look at that. You know the point is is that one of the reasons why I leave this to the end is because I don't have any great answers for you, but just from reading the literature, I'm not sure that many people are even asking the question yet. It seems like there's a lot of people who automatically assume that assessment is about content acquisition, and we're doing quizzes and doing tests to make sure that they understand the reading and, and that sort of thing. But I would challenge all of us to start asking the question, is that really all we should be looking at, particularly in these courses where we've shifted what's important?
0: I know based on the guests that I've had, and I've been so grateful for all the people who have been on the show, holistically, they have tended to challenge me to not want to quantify things as much because my background comes from a real measure Wanting to have a measurability around learning and, and training that I, I know they want to push back against. But at the same time, I do think that I love this that you're bringing into the conversation because if we're not measuring then this less concentrated effort on knowledge acquisition, then we do have to think and reflect and then try to find some way of measuring what it is we are hoping to achieve.
1: Yeah, and I'm not against measuring at all. I mean, I'm I'm with you. I'm a, I'm a measure. There's probably some of my friends who might unfriend me after hearing <laughs> me say that. But I love to measure things and quantify things. And so, actually, my dissertation research was looking at things like hyperlinks and images and videos, and in Twitter environments, you know, mentions and hashtags and those sorts of things that are very quantifiable how can those relate to expressions of making connections? Mm -hmm. So if the whole point is to make a connection, are there quantifiable like real objects out there? And I call them digital annotations. It's a fancy name, but basically I'm talking about like hyperlinks, for example. We can count hyperlinks, but how are students using hyperlinks? and, And what sort of connections are students making through hyperlinks? And what I found was, like, hyperlinks in particular are extremely, and, and it makes sense, of course, because what is a hyperlink? It's, a, it's an actual physical connection. But I started talking to students about how they're hyperlinking, what are they hyperlinking to, and students started having a really fun time playing around with using hyperlinks for different things. You know, of course, you're using it as a way of, of showing your, your source of information, and that's great. But in other places, they were using it for descriptions, or past experiences, or to show links across their work over time. So if you're linking back to previous blog posts, what are you really doing by, by doing that? What you're doing is you're creating your own story of your learning. Mm-hmm. First I did this, then I did this, then I did this. And it's a very active way of piecing together your personal experience of this topic over time you know, or hyperlinking to the course website. You know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to use hyperlinks in order to express connection. And just talking to students about that, you know, they found that very engaging and it helped them kind of elevate their digital writing a little bit. Mm. So that's just one example of where, you know, really looking at some of these solid things, you know, I would never say let's grade students on if they have 10 hyperlinks in in a blog post, then they get an A. You know, I'm not saying that at all. That's a little ridiculous. But there are very real, very quantifiable things that you can talk about with students when it comes to talking about making connections that then create a picture. So assessment becomes about documenting this process of learning, and and it creates pictures that you can show students and help students reflect back on. Like, for example, in Twitter, you can make a map. Of uh, the students talking to each other, right? Mm-hmm. You know, social network analysis. Well, those maps are very easy to throw up. They're actually pretty intuitive to read, and you can throw that up on onto a screen and show students. Say, now here's you. Here's now here. What's going on with your communication patterns here? Is this really how you wanted to talk? So I see that you're only talking to the instructor. You're not talking to the other students.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that? what you want to do? Is that the goal of the exercise? You know, it gives you something concrete to talk about. Whereas in a non-digital space, that's very hard to do. I mean, unless you're recording all of your class conversations and then playing them back. I mean, it'd be hard to talk to students about their communication patterns versus in this digital world, you, you can.
0: Well, I love what you said there is that we really get into a danger zone when we start relying on quantity as measures of learning, particularly in the social media spaces and, and network learning. I did wanna mention that the social network analysis is fairly a new area for me. And Robert Talbert, who's a former guest on the show posted a resource on the Slack channel, the teaching in higher ed Slack channel. And so I'll put that in the show notes if it's new to anyone else who's listening. Because as you were describing us, oh, yeah, that's, that's on my list of, of things to go and check out and, and discover a little bit more about because I think that that could be a really powerful lens for us to use in our teaching. This is the time in the show where we each get to give a recommendation. And I've talked about this group before on the show, Playing for Change. People who've been listening for a while might remember that this group is, it's so funny that it's not a coincidence that I would bring it up on the show with you, Laura, but they play music around the world and then they record it and lay it all into one track. And it's just really a beautiful look at the diversity of music. And this particular song that they posted is, is not quite that same idea. Most of their videos are multiple musicians playing all around the world. But this is a group of musicians that are playing on a boat. And they're playing on a boat in Marina del Rey, California. But this group is originally, the group is Los Pingos. And they're going to play a song, I'll play it for you in just a second, called Fumaza. Fumaza. And they are originally from Buenos Aires. And here is a little bit of Fumaza. me I really encourage you to go to the show notes and check them out because they're so much fun just sitting on this boat, all these musicians <laughs> playing all these instruments as they float around, along the waters there in Marina del Rey. So check it out. We've got a violin, guitar, and some set of drums I don't recognize, but really good stuff. So. <laughs>
1: That made me feel like I was on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, that sounds great.
0: <laughs> I should have done share screen with you or something so you could see it too.
1: <laughs> oh, I was dancing. You just couldn't see me because it's a podcast. <laughs> it's
0: good stuff. <laughs> All right. I'm going to pass it over to you, Laura, for your recommendation.
1: Well, I, you know, sometimes I think the best way to actually understand what's going on is to see it. So the Digital Media Learning Research Hub, DML Research Hub, has a, a amazing number of. They've got infographics. They've got case studies. They have short videos about connected learning in different contexts. So K through 12, all the way up through higher ed, informal learning environments as well. And their website, one one of the websites, connected dmlresearchhub.net is great, but also connectedlearning.tv is also a wonderful place to see a bunch of vignettes or case studies or or hear instructors talking about what it means to have a connected course or promote connected learning in their courses. So I love DML Research Hub. Another great way of learning about this is to go out and see some course websites that are available on the web. So DS106, if you're familiar with that course, that's the famous University of Mary Washington course on digital storytelling that kind of kickstarted a lot of this stuff off. So I recommend that. Um, there's also a professor at Kansas State named Mike Wesch, W-E-S-T-H, who does a lot of amazing work on using YouTube in his cultural anthrop- anthropology courses. So I recommend looking, looking him up as well. Um, so those are, those are probably my favorite resources for the day.
0: Oh, those are fabulous. I have heard of most of them and I follow Mike on Twitter, but some of the time you don't always go outside of Twitter as much as you could then to go follow up on all their other great resources. So I'll check out his YouTube channel.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you Google him, what comes up is a whole array of his YouTube channels and just looking at some of the things that he's talking about with his Anthropology 101 course in particular. It's pretty interesting stuff, so I recommend it.
0: Laura, you came highly recommended and did not disappoint at all. I've so enjoyed all of the things we got to talk about today. And what is so fun about having you as a part of my personal learning network is I know it's just the beginning. So I just appreciate your investment of time and contribution to my learning as well as everyone who listens to the podcast.
1: Oh, it was great fun, Bonnie. It's nice to meet you.
0: I appreciate Laura's time so much being on the show and it was fun to get a chance to know her from a different perspective. I've I've been following her on Twitter and enjoy so much of the work that she does. I hope you'll go to the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 116 to get a better view on some of the tools she talked about and some of her own blogging. She definitely practices what she preaches. So thanks once again to Laura and thanks to all of you for listening. If you are early in your teaching in higher ed listening experience, you may not know that there is a free ed tech essentials guidebook that you can receive by subscribing to the weekly update. And the weekly update is just an email that comes in You might have guessed already once a week and you get the show notes from whatever the most current episode is along with an article about teaching or productivity written by me. You can subscribe at com slash subscribe. And I hope you'll do so. If you haven't already, it's just a nice way to stay connected. I'm also on Twitter at B-O-N-N-I- And as Laura mentioned, that is just such a wonderful way to engage with each other and continue to cultivate our personal learning networks. And if you'd like to cultivate the learning network that is teaching in higher ed, one of the best ways to do that is to leave a rating or a review for the show on whatever service it is that you use to listen. So if that's iTunes, you go to where you subscribe to the podcast there's a place where you can look at other ratings that people have given, and that's the same spot that you go to. I hope some of you will consider that so you can continue to spread the word about the show and grow our community. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.